Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. So a gal had been teaching her three-year-old daughter, Maggie, the Lord's Prayer for several evenings at bedtime. And she would repeat after her mom the lines from the prayer. Um, finally, after a while, she decided to let her go solo, and mom listened with pride as she carefully enunciated each word right up to the end of the prayer. She said, lead us not into temptation and deliver us some email. <laughs> how, do, how do noodles end their prayer? Ramen. Oh, that's good right there. Oh, my goodness. Little John and his family were having Sunday dinner at his grandmother's house, and everyone was seated around the table as the food was being served. And while John received his plate, he started eating right away. And his mom was like, John, you know that we pray before we eat. And he says, I don't have to pray. And she said, yes, you have to pray before you eat. And she says, I don't have to pray. We're at grandma's because she knows how to cook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, finally, the preacher's five-year-old daughter noticed that her father always paused and bowed his head for a moment before he started the sermon. And one Sunday, uh, she asked him why. And he said, well, honey, and he's thinking, man, I'm so glad my daughter's paying attention. And she says, why do you stop and you know, do this before your sermon? And he says, well, I pray that the Lord would help me to give a good sermon. And she thought about it for a minute. And she says, well, why doesn't he answer? <laughs> All right. So, the subject of prayer, as you might have guessed, for today. Two weeks ago, we began a new section of the Sermon on the Mount, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, it's all about spiritual disciplines. And what do we mean by spiritual disciplines? Well, things like giving and prayer and fasting. And as we've seen so far, Jesus told us we don't want to do our spiritual disciplines with the intention that, you know, other people are giving us glory. Um, we're not to do things like the hypocrites, as Jesus said, to be seen and to be praised by men. Now, the heading of this section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, is verse 1 of chapter 6, where it says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So that's kind of the heading of chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. It's all under that heading. And then, you know that he talks about giving and then prayer and then fasting. Um, so last week we began looking at prayer. We looked at verses 5 through 8. And the things that we learned, three really important lessons, is first of all, the one was simple, is pray to God. Don't pray so man hears you. You know, don't be offering these prayers where you're really trying to say innuendos to people, but you're disguising it like it's prayer. You know, you're like, Oh, Lord, I just pray that my wife will make macaroni and cheese tonight, Father, and that she'll just have stovetop stuffing and turkey. And, you know, you know, I'm not praying to God. I'm trying to make it to where Aaron hears it, so I'm giving her my dinner request, right? But he, Jesus says, don't do that. Pray to God. You know, that was the first point. Pray directly to him. Then pray meaningful words. Don't use vain repetitions. Remember, we talked about how the pagans prayed. They just uh, pray vain repetitions or kind of thinking that God's like, uh, mechanical. And if I say the right amount of, you know, prayers, if I say this 10 times, then God's okay. Well, you did a worse sin, so say it 20 times. Well, that's not how God works. He says, don't use vain repetitions, meaningless repetitions. 
Um, you know, Brother Jeff pointed out today that, you know, anybody could turn anything into a vain repetition if you disconnect your heart from the things that are coming out of your mouth. So now the last thing that we learned last time was pray knowing that God knows all. He knows your needs before you even ask. And so that changes how you pray also too. You know, when you go to the Lord, um, it's comforting to know that he already knows what you need before you even ask. He's not reluctant to bless you. He's not reluctant to meet your needs. You don't have to badger him. You don't have to, you know, have this attitude of like, I got to really twist God's arm. He wants to bless you. And uh, so that's the things we learned last time. Pray to God, use meaningful words, pray knowing that God knows all. Now, this week we get into what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, in this prayer, it's, it's actually, it, there's a forgiveness, there's a petition for the forgiveness of sins in here. So it's actually better called the disciples' prayer. See, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord wouldn't pray, forgive me of my trespasses because he's sinless, right? So it's better called the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. Um, very important prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus' disciples ask him, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you remember that? I can't uh, find any other place in the scriptures where the disciples ask the Lord to teach them anything. I'm sure that they may have. But the only thing recorded in scripture is them saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Not how to preach, not how to play guitar, not other stuff. Just Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, no doubt they observed the Lord's prayer life and, um, you know, saw the power and saw like how he was doing this. He had this intimacy with God. And so they, they saw him and they said, Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. And that's this prayer right here. Uh, what's commonly referred to as the Lord's prayer, but we're going to call the model prayer. So Jesus teaches them the model prayer. Now, I do believe there's great benefit in praying this prayer verbatim from memory. And certainly training your kids to memorize it is profitable, certainly. Um, provided it doesn't become a vain repetition. Because we have uh, no record of the disciples praying this prayer verbatim in Acts or anywhere else in the Bible, I do believe it's more of a model prayer than it is meant to be recited word for word. Now, Jesus teaches them this wonderful prayer beginning in verse 9. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Heavenly Father, as we do turn to your word, we ask, Lord, that you would make the book live to us and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you'd speak to us beyond the words of a man, that you would use this Bible study, Lord, to communicate your will towards us today. Lord, may we worship you as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick analysis of the prayer reveals that there are six requests or petitions and then a doxology. Doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. Doxology is like to ascribe glory. So that's the last verse of it, is it a doxology? But there are six requests in here. Three petitions are about God, and three are about us. The three about God, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The three about us, give us daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. 
Notice the primary purpose of prayer. What does it start with? It starts with three petitions that are about God. Now, the primary purpose of prayer is about getting God's will accomplished. That's the primary purpose of prayer is getting God's will accomplished. Now, we have this tendency just to go to God and just ask him for the stuff we want right away. And it's, we almost think like um, the purpose of prayer is about getting our will to be done. If you really are honest, if you really think about your prayer life here, how many times are your prayers about you getting your will done, right? I mean, I do this all the time. I listen to myself. I'm like, wow, you know, I have an idea for how I think God should do things. And so then now I'm praying to him, Lord, will you do this the way that I think you should? <laughs> you know, I come up with plans and I say, Lord, you should bless these plans, you know? And they're so good. God, let me tell you about how to run my life here a little bit. And, uh, you know, I've got this, I got this really cool plan. And, you know, Lord, amen. <laughs> you know? But really, because the primary purpose of prayer is getting God's, getting God's will accomplished, we ought to um, begin our prayers focused on him. And that's what we see here as Jesus teaches this model prayer. So first of all, the outline's simple today. You can see, well, I guess it's not that simple. There are sub points. Look out, sub points. Two main points, verse 9a, to whom prayer is addressed, verse 9b through 10, three petitions about God, and then there they are, verse 9b, that his name uh, be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and the last one, that his will be done. And that's all we're going to look at today. To whom prayer is addressed, number one, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven. Jesus tells his followers to address their prayers to their Father in heaven. Now, this was new and startling. This was a startling thing to address God so personally like this. At this time, many would have considered how Jesus is speaking to God as maybe even blasphemous. Now, the nation of Israel knew that God was the father of the nation, but they didn't address him as my father in this personal way. And so it would have been kind of startling. You know, Paul also said that when you have the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in your life at conversion, that he comes into our heart and he causes us to call out, Abba, Father. And he's not talking about the Swedish pop group, right? He's talking about there's this calling in your heart that wants to call God Daddy. That's what Abba means. It's like a little kid going up to their daddy going, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And Paul says that the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of a person at conversion and causes them to call out Abba, Father. Now, some people are kind of bothered by this closeness with God. And you want to really examine that because the Bible is clear that if the Holy Spirit is in you, you're experiencing this desire to call him Daddy. And to call him Father. I have a cool story about that, but I'm not going to tell it because of time's sake. But the first time that I was ever, uh, you know, because uh, I used to kind of be like, whoa. I met a person one time that called God Daddy all the time. And this gal was like, I call him Daddy. And I'm like, huh. And it, was a little, it stirred me up a little bit. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. He says, when you address your prayer, Address it to your Father. 
Have you ever wondered how God's like a father, by the way? I just want to talk about this for a second because as a pastor, I've literally stood in front of people a few times and said the word father and literally watched people like blank out for the rest of the sermon because there's so many bad fathers in this world. There's so many hurtful fathers in this world that we come up to this text or we come up to people calling God father and we literally like start having a flashback and we're PTSD in this place. Seriously. And uh, I, I mean, I've literally witnessed it. Just people just, because of just using that word. And so I thought it would be helpful today to just point out a couple of scriptural examples of how God is like a father, right? And maybe this will minister to your heart. It's ministered to my heart over the years. I didn't have a dad that was um, sober and, uh, you know, he died, he committed suicide eventually and he was involved with drugs and he was abusive and he was an alcoholic and he was all those different things. And I grew up just not knowing what the heck was going on. And so I had a hard time with this father concept, you know, like I'd be mad, you know, deep down. But as the Lord throughout the years has ministered to me through the scriptures, some of these truths that stand out are just like, uh, they're so good. And so I wanted to bring some of them today. The first one is, um, you know, he is far greater than even the greatest earthly father, right? In Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, Jesus says this pretty interesting thing. He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus is pointing out is like even most earthly fathers, if their kid comes up and says, I want some eggs, they don't turn around and say, oh, here's a scorpion. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, like, wouldn't that be twisted? By the way, what a twisted picture. But what Jesus is saying is even most earthly fathers, you know, they know, he says, even you being evil, give good gifts to your children. And then those three words that stand out in there, I love those words when they show up, like how much more will God, you know, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. God, our Father, is better than even the earth, best earthly father. Like you might think, oh, I've got a pretty great earthly dad. I don't realize or even, you know, empathize with what he's talking about here. Well, God's even better than that. That's just the first point I wanted to point out. In Luke chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, there's the very familiar story of the prodigal son. You guys familiar with it? Um, son takes off, says, I don't want anything to do with my home life anymore. I just want the inheritance and I want to go and party. And then he moves to Vegas. And the next thing you know, he's, he doesn't move to Vegas, but like the equivalent of it. And he's like doing drugs and he's partying with all these people and the players love him while they're playing. And then eventually it all comes down and he's in this, um, uh, he's feeding pigs, right? <laughs> eventually. And, uh, you know, it's, not a bad job. I used to be a pig farmer when I was a kid, but for a Jew, like that's the lowest. You're not supposed to even have anything to do with pigs. And you know what he's doing for food eventually? This kid is eating the pig's food, it says. So he's out there feeding the pigs and he's like, man, I'm so hungry. Well, and he's just, you know, and the pig's like, what are you doing, man? No, I don't, I added that part. But so then he starts to remember how good it was in his father's home. You remember the story? He just starts remembering. He's like, you know, all these people that loved me when I had all this money, when I was like, you know, taking everybody out to the bars and partying all the time. All those people, they don't want anything to do with me anymore. Here I'm eating pig food and I think about it. And even the servant in my father's house was treated way better. I'm just going to go home and, and I'll just be a servant to my father. I don't even, I've, you know, forfeited the right to be a son. I'll just be a servant. And what does this dad do, right? 
he's coming back. And I'm sure dad had been looking off the horizon daily, waiting for, you know, is he ever going to come back? And all of a sudden, here he comes up over the horizon. And the dad says, you know what? Here comes my son. And he goes and he runs to him and he gives him a ring and he puts a robe on him and he slays the fatted calf and they have this huge party, right? Now, think about this dad, because you're supposed to understand this is how God is. This is how God is, right? There wasn't any of this like, so you took my inheritance money and you went to Vegas and you blew it all on fentanyl and you know and everything else and now you're just you're a worthless lost cause and now you've come back and you want to be my servant. Okay, fine. Well, here you're going to pay me back all the money. No, none of that. And he pours out so much grace and love that even the, you know the other brothers like, what are you doing? I can't believe this son of yours. You know, and he came back and he goes, man, my son was dead and now he's alive. He goes, this is a reason to party. But the father there, notice what the father did. He just wanted him to come home. That's the only thing he wanted. He just wanted him to come home. That's what we know about God, our father, is he just wants you to come home, right? You pray to my father who art in heaven. This is him, the one that just wants you to come home, right? Now, another thing, this is kind of in Jeremiah, an Old Testament passage. Um, One of the rare occasions where God is referred to as a father in the Old Testament what I want you to see here is fatherhood is just the nature of his heart. Let me read Jeremiah. I'm going to read it from the NLT version because it gets at the meaning of it pretty clearly. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 says, I thought to myself, and God talking, I would love to treat you as my own children, talking about the nation of Israel. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to, your, to you calling me father. And I wanted you never to turn from me, but you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a fatherless wife who leaves her husband. And it says, I, the Lord, have spoken. What you understand in there is he, he says, I just wanted you to call me father. I just, I wanted the nation of Israel, right? God promised them a land. He promised them a people. He promised them a law and he promised them blessings if they would just Follow what he was saying, you know? Uh, you know? He says, I just wanted to call you father. That was it. But you were unfaithful to me. You went and did all your own thing, and, you know, you, you just, I don't know. So fatherhood is just his nature, right? So there's just a few things we could talk about the fatherhood of God and the nature of God, uh, you know, for a long time. But he's greater than any earthly father. He just wants his children to come home, and fatherhood is just his nature. He just wants to call. He wants you to call him dad, you know? He wants you to call him daddy. Now, Jesus is the Son, right? And we are joined with him so that then we enter into prayer with our Father in the same way that Jesus did. For those in Christ through faith, nothing can change that relationship ever that you have. God is your Father. Now, this is radical, right? That the creator of the universe wants us to think of him as our Father. Isn't that a radical thought? Um, He delights in it when we depend on him as our Father. And admittedly, this is hard to wrap your mind around, you know, but... Jesus wants us to think of him like that, and God, our Father, wants to think of him in this way. Three petitions about God, moving on. If you've noticed, uh, most times we start prayers, like I mentioned, with our own requests. Um, We make requests for ourselves. But because the primary purpose of prayer is God's will being accomplished, we ought to begin with our prayers focused on him. Here's the way Jesus says to begin. These three petitions are concerning his name, his kingdom, and his will. He says, hallowed be your name. Um, I remember the the little kid's joke, um, you know, that he didn't understand the Lord's Prayer. And he says, who's Harold? 
Harold be your name. <laughs> oh, no, it's Hallowed be your name. Now, what does uh, Hallowed mean? Now, I used to think this was just a statement, but, you know, studying that like it was just a statement, like, your name is Hallowed, you know, but it's actually a request. Um, the way the language is used here, he's actually saying to make this request that your name would be Hallowed, right? And so, not a common word today. I'm not sure when the last time you used this word. Um, not a common word today. The Greek word that's translated hallowed here is the word from where we get our English word holy. The word is also translated saint and sanctified in other scriptures. Here, it's used as a verb. Now, what it usually means is to set something apart for special use, right? Like if we got some new candle holders and we were only going to use them for the worship service, we could hallow them. We could set them apart, and that means they were only used for the worship service. That's what it means, you know, to be holy. It means to be set apart, to be sanctified, or to be hallowed, right? That's usually what the word means. But in this case, the meaning is similar to the way this word is used in 1 Peter 3, chapter 15. Let me read it to you. It says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. See the word sanctified? It's the same word that's translated hallowed here. The word sanctified. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, it says in Peter. Now what Peter means is to give God the correct place in your heart. The place that he deserves. That's what it means in Peter where he says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. That's the idea here. Hallowed be your name. May your name have the appropriate place in my life. That's what he's asking. That's the petition. Now, the scope is bigger than our own hearts. More completely, the idea here would be kind of linked to, say, the Ten Commandments. You know the first commandment? Um, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? That's the idea here of hallowed be your name. Lord, may there be no other God before you. May there be no other voice before your voice. May there, there's no other king. Hallowed be your name. So the petition is, may God have his proper place above and beyond all. So that's how it starts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May God, may you have your proper place above and before all. So when we pray this, we are asking God that he might be honored as creator, that he might be honored as God most high, as ruler over the heaven and the earth, as provider, that God might be honored as Lord, we honor God when we trust that he is ultimately the creator and ruler of all his creation. We honor God when we trust his provision in our lives. We honor God when we submit to him as Lord over our lives, over our marriages, over our homes and our families. We honor him when we recognize that he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the first, the last. He's the baby in the manger. He's Jesus Christ, the Lord. We honor him as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the unchangeable, eternal I am, the prince of peace, the savior, the healer, the redeemer, the friend of the fatherless, the one near the brokenhearted, the helper in time of need, the only wise, holy, good judge of the whole universe. We honor him and we hallow his name when we recognize that he's the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, that he is true life. He's the king of kings. He's the father of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, the God of James, John, Peter, Paul. He's your father, he's your God, and he's my father as well. And that's what it means to hallow his name, is to understand that he's above all, 
in all these areas and all these different things and to have him have the rightful place in your mind and in your heart. That's what it means, hallowed be thy name. Jesus says to begin the prayer, praying to your father, asking that his name would be hallowed in this world, in, this, in my family, in my house, in this church, in this community, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, this is another request. It's similar to the other one, but this is a request for God's rule and reign. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, this isn't a very easy question to answer. I mean, we, it's hard to answer with just statements, but I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a concept of it. So the kingdom of God, first of all, there's the universal kingdom of God. This is one concept that theologians call the universal kingdom of God. In this sense, God created everything. And as kingdoms of man come and go, as they do, um, God is still sovereign over all. He's still the creator of all the universe. Has he given control to the earth, to the enemy? Yes, he has. Right in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve kind of forfeited the right to have dominion over all things. They gave the, you know, you read the book of Revelation, there's the title deed to the earth and nobody can redeem it. But God still sits sovereign over all of that. And you understand that by reading the book of Job as well. So that's the universal kingdom of God. So he says, pray your kingdom come. Well, he's probably not referring to the universal kingdom of God because that's already here. It always will be here. It's always been here, right? Then there is the reality of the coming kingdom known as the millennium or the millennial kingdom or the millennial kingdom of Christ. Now, when you go through the scriptures in a plain, literal reading, you understand that there is a future event coming, a future kingdom that Jesus Christ himself will establish and rule. This is coming after the church age. There are different theories about this, whether it's literal or not. Like I'm saying, with a literal reading of the scripture, you understand that there's a future event coming, a future kingdom that Christ will himself have to establish, and that comes after the church age. It's called the millennium, the millennial kingdom. Now, the covenants in the Old Testament taken literally necessitate a literal fulfillment, a literal kingdom, when those covenants are taken success, uh, uh, literally. Um, there's the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. There's what they call the Palestinian covenant. It's the promise to give Israel land. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Then there's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, where God promises David that there will always be a king that sits on the throne from his line for eternity, Right? Those are these different, different covenants throughout the Old Testament that when you read them literally, they necessitate a literal fulfillment of an eternal kingdom, right? It's obvious when you look at your news app today that we're not in the kingdom yet. And why do I say that? Because the Bible talks about the millennial kingdom as a kingdom of peace. There will be perfect conditions spiritually, physically. It'll be a kingdom of joy, of comfort. Everyone will be obedient to Jesus Christ. People will be holy. People will live in truth. People will have knowledge of God, and Christ will rule as king. And so all you got to do is just open the newspaper and find out that's not happening yet. And so all of that to be said, um, that this millennial kingdom literally taken in the scripture is something that's coming. Now, I believe part of what Jesus is saying when he's saying, pray your kingdom come, is referring to that. You know, you wake up every day and you read some news story about, you know, this politician or this thing or, or Kensington Avenue, and, and you start to say, Lord, your kingdom come. 
I, I long for the day, Lord, when you'll set the right thing, you know, the wrong things right, and, and we long for that. And um, I think that's probably a good idea of what Jesus is saying here. All these prayers, your kingdom come, they will be fulfilled in the day that Christ comes and sets up his rule and reign for a thousand years. The Bible says in Zechariah, he'll rule from Jerusalem. There'll be a regathering of the nation of Israel. Altogether, they'll become believers. Um, you can study this stuff out for yourself, but I've just given you the overview. It's hard to wrap our minds around in a world like this, but we certainly look forward to it. And um, the fulfillments of God's many covenants depend on it. So now, that's a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, but there's an already aspect of the kingdom of God. So there's a not yet and an already. Theologians call it the already not yet, all right? You ever seen that as you're studying? I'm not sure, but there is an already aspect of the kingdom of God. Uh, you see, God has called us and people and Christians to himself, and he's called us to him to be ruled by him, right? Uh, Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. That's a call to follow Jesus Christ as king, as Lord of your life, right? So the already aspect of the kingdom is wherever, here's an easy way to think of it. Wherever the king is enthroned as the king is essentially an aspect, an outpost of the kingdom of God. In here, if we are the king's subjects, if I look at my life and I say, I'm ruled by Jesus Christ, if I give him control of my life, he's king of my life, then there's the kingdom of God, right? When Jesus was talking to the disciples, he said, don't look around for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you. Um, it doesn't mean that inside of them, it, he was standing in the midst of them, right? And so what he's getting at is where the king is and where people are subject to the king, that's where the kingdom of God is. So when you pray this prayer and you're saying, Lord, your kingdom come, not only are you saying, I'm looking forward to you setting up the millennial reign, I'm also saying, be king of my house. Be king of my parenting. Be king of my marriage. Be king of the church. Be king in Mason City. Be king of my heart. Rule my heart, Lord. That's one thing that, that's getting lost in Christianity today is the the doctrine of the kingship of Jesus Christ, that if I say I believe and I follow him, do I believe that he's the king that has the right to rule and reign my life, right? And that's what that prayer is. Your kingdom come. Um, the already and the not yet aspect, I believe, are probably both wrapped up in there. Now, individual Christians ought to desire the Lord's rule in themselves, their marriages, their families, their children. May we desire to live as the king's people here and now. This is why we pray to our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And finally, that your will be done. Your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. Now, when I talk about how the kingdom of God has this already aspect, where he says here, on earth as it is in heaven, that lends to that too, that Jesus is probably getting at the here and now too, because he's saying on earth as it is in heaven, it's probably leaning towards that direction. Now, your will be done on heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. Many times we're praying, Lord, my will be done. Now, if you really stop and pay attention to your prayers and the prayers of those around you, we pray for our will to be done so easily. That's the easiest thing to think about. God, I, this is what I want, God. The desire to see the Lord's will be done proves that we know our place 
and that we understand what it means to be Christians. I know everything about trying to get my will done. When I was a kid, I was an only child, and I was a spoiled brat, and so I was like, I know how to get things done. I want my will to be done. And I'd throw a tantrum, and my mom had like no boundaries, and I would just get her to give me stuff. I wanted these shoes one time, Nike Air Max. They'd just come out, the Nike Air Max with a little pocket in the side. You could see the air in there. It was the coolest thing ever. And she wouldn't give them to me. And I just, well, I want my shoes. You're, you're terrible. And eventually she gave them to me. And stuff. Because I was born uh, knowing, you know, my will be done. And if you think about it, that's how kids are, right? Every person's born like that, aren't they? You ever seen a baby? You know what they do? They go, yeah, give me stuff, you know? You ever see that? That's what they do. They do that their whole life. There's some people that are like 45 still doing that, you know? Big babies. But everybody's born with that. Everybody's born with the me first. Me, give me, right? And so when we sit down to pray, we have to be really careful because that old nature, even though it's just, it doesn't have control over us anymore fully because the spirit of God is inside of us. And we don't have to yield to that, but it's still in there, right? It's still trying to get control. And so Jesus says, if you understand your place, then you understand it's all about his will getting done, right? His will. And so you sit down to pray, and you say, your will be done. Jesus says that to be his follower, one must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow him. Now that request or that command, it begins with self-denial. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means it says, God, I realize, God, that you created me and that you have a will for my life. Although you've given me the freedom to kind of go off on my own will and do my own thing, I've realized that I'm not doing a very good job of that. <laughs> and so what I want to do now is I want to give you control of my life, and you're the king, and I want to follow you. And now it's all about your will being done. And I'll tell you what, if you're honest with yourself, God is going to be a lot better at leading and ruling your life than you are, right? You know, It's kind of a blessing when you have a hard life, like drugs and alcohol and party and, and trouble and you're going to jail. It's kind of a blessing in a sense. Because you get brought to the crossroads real quick that you don't know how to live your own life. You know what I mean? And that's a blessing, isn't it? I mean, I'll tell you what, the hardest people to reach are the religious good people, you know, where they, the Bible bounces off of them. They read all this stuff and they're listening to a sermon and they're listening for you because you're the one that needs it. They don't need it, right? They're the hardest people to reach, like the well-heeled, all fixed up, everything's all good. But when you're, you know, in a life full of hardship, and trouble, you come to figure out, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I'll tell you with my own story, when I came to Jesus, I was like, man, thank you, God. I didn't have a dad tell me what to do, and you're going to be my father? And you gave me a book that's going to tell me how to live my life? And I, and I live these things, and my life gets better? And like, oh, it's exciting. I mean, it's such an exciting thing. I'll tell you what, uh, I'm grateful for God. You know, when I, I mean, I hope you are too. That we should pray, Lord, your will be done. Because can you imagine if God listened to you? <laughs> Just the other day I was praying, and I told you this story maybe, but, you know, we were trying to paint our house. And I was like, Lord, make it not rain. Because that would be a waste of money. I mean, a good couple hundred bucks. But I guarantee at the same time, a farmer watching his crops like with no rain because there was that huge drought here, I guarantee, well, I would guess maybe they're sitting at dinner saying, Lord, make it rain, make it rain. And I'm sitting here, make it not rain. And so, you know what I mean? Isn't it a good thing God doesn't listen to us? It'd be like a short circuit, you know? Um, 
weird to think about. His will be done. There are really two wills in the universe, right? There's the will of God, and then there's the will of the enemy. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, God said, look, I have a will for you. I've given you this whole place, and here's what I will that you would do, is that you would just enjoy all the plants, that you would eat all the stuff, and that you would just have a blessed time. There's millions of things you can do. I, there's, there's just one thing I don't want you to do. And, uh, you know, and that's my will. But then the, here comes the enemy saying, oh, God's no good. He's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have that. And so then now the will of the enemy is to turn hearts from God, right? And so do they do it? Yeah, they go and they get their hearts turned. And you see it all then, the will of man. What does Cain do, right? And it just keeps on going and just going through the whole Bible. You see the will of man. I think it culminates, you know, well, it doesn't culminate, but one of the greatest examples of this is um, in the book of Isaiah, right? Uh, let me read this to you in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. It says this. This is God speaking. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Right? Satan's motto is, I will. Now, when you live a life and I will is your motto, you're being more like Satan then you are a Christian. Scary to think about. Satan was determined to ascend from earth, to be exalted above God. And when we live lives with no regard for God's will, we are in effect doing something very similar to Satan. Therefore we pray to our Father in heaven, asking that his name be honored, that his kingdom come, and that his will be done. Understand, God's will is perfect, and therefore any will that's not his will is imperfect, right? This is why we pray, your will be done. This is why we pray and we study the word of God to determine his will for our lives. Christians that don't study the word of God, I don't know like how you understand the will of God if you don't study the word of God, right? Because there's a, there's a bunch of Christianity going around that um, I don't even know if it's Christianity, but it's like a feelings-based sort of esoteric sort of spirituality, new age sort of thing. If it's not grounded in the word of God, how do you know that it's the will of God, right? If you can't point to verse and chapter, how do you know it's the will of God? Well, you're so sure. Well, I think God wants me to do this. Well, when was the last time you were in the scriptures? I don't read the scriptures. How do you know it's the will of God? I don't know. It feels right. Well, your, your feelings are your God, and your motto is, I will. You know, some people today will say, God doesn't answer my prayer. Every time I pray to God, he doesn't answer my prayer. Well, let me ask you this. When you pray to God, are you praying for his will to be done or your own will to be done? Because he's not going to answer. You see what Jesus is saying here, you know? You start by 
giving God his proper place. Hallowed be your name. You're God above all. You're God above me. You're God above this community. You're God above everything. Um, your kingdom come. Rule my life. Rule my heart. Rule my family. Your will be done. And, and if that's where your heart goes before you get into anything that you're asking God for, you're in the right place. You know your place. I know my place at that point, and now I'm ready to receive. I want what the Lord wants, right? We need to make this change in our prayer life. So, as you can see, the primary purpose of prayer is getting God's will accomplished, and therefore we ought to begin our prayers focused on him. Prayer, as taught here by Jesus himself, first submits willingly to God's purposes, plans, and glory. In conclusion, I just want to give you a little bit of application for this week. It's jumping right out. It's simple enough, so I might as well just, I mean, talk about it. But this week, why don't you consciously begin your prayers by applying what was learned here today? Like, there's nothing wrong with just reciting this and getting this, like, in your mind and getting this memorized. But just try that when you're praying, or at least just try to pay attention to how you're praying and if, if you go right into your request, it's not that God doesn't want to hear your heart. He does, of course. But Jesus is telling us a, way, a better way to pray than just to be self-centered about it and, and to be all about my will. And so, so this week, would you just try to um, apply these things? Just try to sit down with God, you know, your will, and, and be hallowed. And ask yourself, is God's name hallowed in your life? And is that, is that your desire for your family and your parenting and your and everything that you're doing? Is that the desire of your heart, that God's will would be done, that he would rule and reign, right? Now, you know that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, right? You guys remember that? where he tells his disciples, wait here and pray for me and I'll be back. And he comes back three times in a row and they're sleeping and eventually he says, it's enough. Bless you. Bless you. And um, and then Jesus said, remember what his prayer was? Father, if there be any way, let this cut pass from me. He's saying if there's any way that the salvation of man can happen, I don't want to go to the cross. Jesus was speaking in his humanity. He was fully God. He was fully man. I can't wrap my mind around either of those things either, but I know the Bible says that he's fully God. He's fully man. Right? And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way than this cross, and he's, he goes and he keeps praying, and, but he ends every one of those prayers, and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, right? If Jesus, looking at the cross before him, can end his prayer with not my will, but thy will be done, then there's hope for us to end our prayer with the very same thing, or begin our prayer with the very same thing, not my will, but thy will be done. The Father's will is best. Father, we do thank you today for who you are, and we praise you. And we thank you for this message that you gave through Jesus to teach us how to pray. And um, thank you for being a good father to us. Thank you for 
your grace and your never-ending love for us, your patience and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to think of you as our dad. And you want us to show, you want to show us what a good dad is. And we thank you for that. Lord, may you be honored in our lives, in this community. May you be honored in this church. May you be honored in public. May you be honored in private. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done. We do look forward to your kingdom. We do know that you say that we're to look up and to be waiting and to be watching. And we look forward to the establishment of your kingdom here. Help us to be effective witnesses in that meantime until that happens, Lord, to see more people come to heaven through our witness. And we pray your kingdom would be done, your kingdom will would be done in our lives and our hearts here today. Father, I do pray for myself at the top of the list and any of the rest of us here that really struggle with submitting our will consistently to you, Father. I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would help us to live that crucified life that Paul talks about, that you would help us to abide in you, because without it we can do nothing. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, would you help us, Lord, to live under the subjection to the Holy Spirit? And, uh, Lord, put that to death in us, Lord, by your Spirit, that flesh. Help us, Lord, to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the lusts of our flesh. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.